This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Let's get going. Okay, welcome everyone to the All Hallows Day special. And, you know, we can't pass up uh, the opportunity on this podcast to celebrate the my personal favorite time of year. I know that's pretty... It's pretty basic in some sense uh, to use the modern parlance, <laughs> but uh, I just love Halloween. Um, and so we're going to talk about some spookiness um, in the yep. form of H.P. Lovecraft. Yep, we got all um, sorts of basalts and we're going to begin. <laughs> yeah, uh, please don't, <laughs> don't, don't bite off my face. Um, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not medical or legal advice. Well, that's why we're having this over Zoom because... We can take the bath salts and then not eat each other's <laughs> yeah. faces. Oh, the, the rubber the rubber walls help too. Uh, H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft, cosmic horror. So let me ask you, what's? Uh, I'll start directly and say, okay, what's the most direct correlation and connection to Nietzsche that you see in H.P. Lovecraft's work and his essence? Yeah, it's definitely encapsulated by that first paragraph of. Um, Call of Cthulhu, yeah. which is, I mean, it's the go-to story yeah. for a lot of people because Cthulhu is like the most iconic Lovecraft. I, I don't know even why I call him a character because he's not really a character, but right. it's it's almost Cthulhu is almost like left the orbit of Lovecraft in some sense, right? Where he's like, supposed to be, it, right? He's supposed to be beyond, you know, conception. <laughs> Right. Well, and, and now there's like Cthulhu plush dolls and like Cthulhu like Funko Pops and stuff. So Metallic like songs. he's right. That's true. Call of Cthulhu, um, which I, I don't know why they changed it when all of Lovecraft's work is in public domain. So you don't really need to change anything. You can just. Um, oh, right. Well, and even, take even what the, you want. The, thing, the thing that should not be right. I think that lines directly from. Yeah, Lovecraft. that. That's a Lovecraft line. I mean, you'll find H.P. Lovecraft references throughout, like, the whole... Everywhere. Uh, well, I was going to say throughout all of heavy metal, basically, has always been influenced by Lovecraft. But um, to get back to why, so so The Call of Cthulhu, you know, it's weird because I love that story, but I almost, like, I hate kind of what it's become in terms of the pop culture consciousness, like that Cthulhu has become such a recognizable character. The fact that it shouldn't be recognizable. It shouldn't Cthulhu should be in the story. You should be imagining something like horrifying beyond your imagination. If that makes sense. It's kind of what Lovecraft is good at is um, naming the unnameable and even you know, he was accused of overusing the term, like, unnamed. Yeah, oh, oh, I was just thinking about that. The whole, oh, um, you, you took it right from me. I was thinking about that on the way home going, you know what? He did say that a lot. And you begin to think if a writer says something like, she was so beautiful, uh, he had no words. And it was so unbelievable, it was undescribable. You begin to think, maybe you lack a certain lexicon or, <laughs> right. you know, articulateness, but... Then I was thinking uh, the rest of it, like his his writing is third, like he's good, uh, fundamentally. Oh yeah, but he's he does. His... That is kind of a, a funny thing when he kind of resorts to that to just going, you know what? Can't describe it. There's some tentacles here and some colors there and alien, otherworldly uh, master races ready to enslave us, but that part is undescribable. 
Right. It's well, and that's sort of the thing, right? So he does describe Cthulhu, but it's always given in a description where, I mean, he talks about this in his, his writing on horror that you have to leave what makes horror effective is leaving it up to the person's imagination because the fear of the unknown is the greatest, right. most potent fear. And then it's going to draw oh, on that's everything his famous that they line, have. Right. His, right. Uh, I mean, that's what, that's what they're going to, it allows your own mind, the mind of the audience to kind of produce the horror. And so I've always thought like when right. you, when Cthulhu is finally revealed at the end of the story, it's kind of, you, you shouldn't already have a, it, it, impoverishes the story for us today if Cthulhu is like a pop culture like image that you already have a preloaded image in your brain that like slots in for what Cthulhu is supposed to look like and right you need or do you kind of yeah, see what I'm no, saying no, like, no. I feel like yeah yeah maybe he needs he needs some more heads uh you know lots of get more gills uh maybe more appendages you know he can right. be far it more should... unknowable Right. It, it's like we've made the uh, uh, horrifyingly ugly into this cute little plush doll now. All right, fine. We need a complete makeover for Cthulhu. Um, right. So, you know, that's kind of the, the problem. But to go back to the first paragraph, it's basically he lays out the problem of science, as I've called it, what Nietzsche called the problem of science. And I've like honed in as like a really important thing in Nietzsche of basically the um, the issue that he saw in like ancient Greek philosophy of the progression of the pre-Platonic philosophers culminating in Socrates of basically materializing the world to the point where metaphysics entirely dies off. Yes. Now we're getting into, we're, we're into birth of tragedy for those who aren't aware. I know you just put out some stuff on that recently. Um, right. Last, I don't know if, if you got the last, the last one I did, I had some quotes from birth of tragedy in there. Um, Cause it's, it's prescient. Or yeah. Right. And that's, I, I think the philosophical angle of what Nietzsche sort of saw happening because he believed that the same process was sort of had been undertaken in our modern European society. Um, you know, what we broadly call the West today and that that all started with the enlightenment and it, you know, it culminates in the death of God, which is like a really right. popular oh, Nietzsche idea. Quote Neil Young? Uh, oh yeah. When, go for it. He says when the, when the aimless blade of science slashed the pearly gates, Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, what song is that in? Thrasher. That's in Thrasher. Okay. Yep. Man, I I don't know how I could forget that line, but I'm I'm maybe not as well. Like, first I, on Neil I Young's... mean, I, I think Nietzsche Nietzsche references it directly. I want to say Lovecraft. Uh, we and we even discussed it before in Supernatural Horror and Literature, right? Where he says even talks about our physiology. You know, even if we could remove all all uh, conscious notions of God and superstition, that like the twitching still be working under the hood yeah which is also a very nietzschean idea right that the yes. the mind and the imagination follows what the nervous where the nervous system leads like so yes it's not it's uh, yeah i think people tend to think of us as uh, being free agents and i think we are to a degree but it's more like if everything is if physics dictates that everything manifests as it is in the mo you know it, like is nietzsche i think nietzsche says it right but physics does too that things are manifesting their ultimate consequence in the moment mm -hmm. at every moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you're kind of, if this is the hoe you've been, you know, if this is the rut you've been hoeing and you've been going in this direction, maybe you didn't even realize it. I'm not going to say it's too late, you know, get too sidetracked here, but mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of how it goes right with our psychology and physiology. Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, the idea being that 
something like the fear of the dark, right? That your physiology is afraid of the dark for a good reason. Yes. Um, Tigers you might be there, say. unknown things be right, there. Right, exactly. And that's why the whole trope, I mean, almost every horror trope, you can like zero it into something like in the natural world, right? Like All glowing right, eyes in the dark. Like it's if horror. you look at, if you have your house cat and you've seen your house cat's eyes like glow in the dark. Oh, yeah. Then you realize it's like, oh, when people were living on the savannah and they saw those two eyes glowing in the dark, that meant somebody was about to like probably the smallest, most precious person, right? One of your kids is about to oh, get taken right. away. Well, I mean, in right. your imagination goes, you know, it, it, it threat and fear, the imagination literally goes wild. So, you know, or like when shit goes down and it's easy to, uh, and you, and, you know, when it dawns on you that this is real and, you know, speaking of glowing eyes in the, in the darkness, you know, I guess uh, I wanted to say that uh, real quick that all horror is allegorical and what Stephen King says in Dance Macabre about what you mentioned earlier when you said that, um, you know, to see a monster and to have it dictated to you, you know, misses the point of imagination and the unknown and these other things. But uh, when, when King wrote about it, he said that, you know, it's always most scary before you've seen the monster, before you know the monster. Because it's like, you don't know the unknown, but once you see that, oh, it's a 10-foot monster, I can handle a 10-foot monster. Oh, it's right. oh, it's even short. Oh, it's an 8-foot monster, I can definitely handle an 8-foot monster. Oh, it's just a bug monster? That's not that scary, you know? Right. Again, yeah, Cthulhu exactly. Cthulhu a plush doll, you know? Uh, you you yeah. nailed it. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the, the image for the podcast uh, episode is the plush doll. Plush. No, that, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, but it's funny because... so now thinking along the lines that you're talking about or that we're, we're talking about, right? It's what Lovecraft identifies there and what King identifies. It, it's like a, it's like the conventional wisdom of like horror filmmaking, right? Of like, don't show the monster immediately. You've got to kind of like let the audiences imagine. Like I just watched American werewolf in London uh, from 81. Uh, you barely see any kind of werewolf in that movie like with any shot that holds on the werewolf. But there's a lot of threat of werewolf, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or like, you know, he has like his, vi his vision, his dreams where there's like Nazi werewolves killing his family and stuff like that, like fever dreams. When he's Dude, like it's ev everyone's worst nightmare. But, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's because that's like a dream sequence. It's kind of like you get by with it. Just in terms of like actually like seeing what he transforms into, you don't, you barely see it at all until it like happens you know you barely see it like what attacks him you barely see when he's out like hunting and all that because it's basically just like the convention of the genre for good reason right. is that like once you've shown well, the audience, once backstage. you let the camera like like linger on your your practical effect right yeah. then they can start scrutinizing <laughs> it. it can be right oh that's cheesy right well yeah you're you, you the the intellect can start breaking it down exactly like with what you're talking about yeah, so you have to thought. like kind of you have to build up to that. You're basically sort of almost building up potential energy, right? By all the fear that you're letting the imagination do until you actually reveal it. And then it still has to be really good. That's like still the moment of truth. But, um, but anyway, so, but in relation to that, like the first paragraph of Call of Cthulhu that I like so much is basically Lovecraft talking about how, like, no, oh, it was it's a funny bolt. because, you know, well, that he's, he, when did you first read that? Let me, when did you first read that whole, because oh, that man. was one of those things that once I read it, it changed my vision and it definitely, you know, it was just that potent. I I think it was like senior year of high school when I read it. Um, and I don't know if I really, if it like sank in, but I, I'm, 
I'm considering it now that, so I'll just read it really quick because it's not, it's not that long. Sure. Quote, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. End quote. Yeah. And so in a, in a way... It's familiar, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But what he's saying, what the main character through, or Lovecraft through the main character is saying is that um, really it's the truth that's horrifying, right? And it's, it's the, only, I, the only thing more, it's the only thing more scary than the unknown. Well, it, it's, it's interesting, though, I'm like, I think there's something weird and dialectical about it, right? Because it's, yeah, the reality is that we don't know the truth, right? And even all of the knowledge that we've ob obtained here, you want to talk about final absolute metaphysical certainties, there's always like slip away from you, right? And yeah, there's a horizon. We're, we're chasing a horizon. And I guess to if, if we're chasing a horizon, then science in the pearly gates was to kind of, you know, dim that horizon or blot it out or level it well, down like in averages and statistics, you know, it's like the further you plunge into the darkness the more horrifying it becomes, not less. Okay, right? and wait, wait, let me tie it into Nietzsche real quick, because this, this reminds me of Lovecraft's cosmic horror came out of the abyss, like where God's corpse lay asunder, let's say, and the earth cracked open, and then there was this abyss underneath. You know, there's that. And uh, I guess this would be a real good time to mention Zaff and his quintessential pessimist essay, which also relates to Nietzsche, you know, he mentions that, that, you know, the mind dangles in threads of its own spinning, and there's a hell lurking underneath. And that if prior in prior history for thousands of years, we had a purpose and a vision and a destiny, right? People of all times and places, you know, have come up with these, you know, they, we, we have these myths and these beliefs and these ways of life. And then if the last few century, you know, centuries has been to blot that out and then hem it in and ta tamper it down and, you know, lose, uh, lose that vision and lose those values and kind of go in that direction, you know, what are you left with? Right. Well, it it's, it's like, it's okay, like everything the... is meaningless, right? This is, this is cosmic horror. Oh, it's not just, it's not even that we're in beyond just being what meaningless and rudderless and purposeless and, you know, not meaning to voyage far that there are also things that are be out there that will forever be beyond our comprehension and things that are wholly still alien and hostile to us. And we beg conciliation from what our maker, from God, from each other, you know, it's a cold comfort, I guess. I'm kind of going kind of on one at the moment, but uh, I hand it back to you. Well, it, it's almost like the there's like the utilitarian promise of what science can be and sort of the the project yeah. of gaining material. Uh, what would yeah, you say, you, like control Socratism, over yeah. reality or whatever? Yeah, it's Socratism. And basically, I would say that that we're still chasing that horizon. It, sure. Well, that's the that's basically the the that's what's pushing us in the sciences laboring each in their own uh little like nietzsche says almost exactly the same language yes i know lovecraft uh, yeah. uses here in the on truth and lies in an extra moral sense essay where he says 
talks about all the strength the sciences are each digging in their own little mine shaft it's it's very similar language and he also starts that same essay with the whole um idea that um mankind was on this like lonely little star like a, gr a group of clever animals that invented knowledge it's very much the same sort of tone of like zooming out from a cosmic eye view and how small and insignificant we look you know like a placid island of ignorance sort of in this you know great cosmic yeah. abyss that's and, is the same framed in the same way right like this this creature and its myth basically right and so it's in the wake of the myth dying off and the mythopoeic power of man basically sort of atrophying the utilitarian sort of theoretical way of life promised us that the sciences would sort of in deliver some sense <laughs> yeah deliver us from evil well that's the thing like it would in some sense like um you know like if we could even solve the problem of self-preservation and attain like medical immortality right then uh, how about instagram you know, and twitter <laughs> right, <laughs> right. No. but that's like sort of i think even today like the transhumanist ideology and all that is sort of based on the idea that somehow science will like overleap the distance over the meaninglessness, right? And what Lovecraft is, what he expresses in that paragraph in a sort of poetic way that Nietzsche and Zapp maybe express in a more philosophical way is like the recognition that that whole view of what science is, is sort of, it, it actually can't address that problem of meaninglessness in the same way. And that the way it's he just- It's almost the one thing it can't touch really. It's like one of few things that actually can't, get it you know what i mean like that we can't right. employ there's just it, it loses and it's all. such like a wispy like hard to categorize yeah. thing that of like what we're even talking about like meaning right like right because if we want to well if we want to be scientific it's like okay why do we even give like why not just cram humans into little boxes and then like we could engineer things to be far more efficient and simpler and easier right, right? if we really wanted so it's not like and i guess that's kind of the that's the most obvious thing to point to so forgive me for point of the obvious uh, uh let me let me take it back to zaf for a second because he frames it very similarly um let's see where he yeah, says did you uh, have a, a part you wanted yeah, to read or... the same in the same essay uh, the last messiah he's talking about this you know mythological creature you know he says so there he stands with his visions betrayed by the universe in wonder and fear the beast knew fear as well in thunderstorms and on the lion's claw but man became fearful of life itself indeed of his very being life that was for the beast to feel the play of power it was heat and games and strife and hunger and then at last to bow before the law of course in the beast suffering is self-confined in man it knocks holes into a fear of the world and a despair of life even as the child sets out on the river of life the roars from the waterfall of death rise highly above the veil ever closer and tearing tearing at its joy and he kind of goes on for a minute says man beholds the earth and it's breathtaking it's breath breathing like a great lung whenever it exhales delightful life swarms from all its pores and reaches out toward the sun but when it inhales a moan of rupture passes through the multitude and corpses whip the ground like bouts of hail not merely his own day could he see the graveyards wrung themselves before his gaze the laments of sunken millennia wailed against him from the ghastly decaying shapes the earth turned dreams of mothers Future's curtain unraveled itself to reveal a nightmare of endless repetition. 
That sounds familiar, right? A senseless squander <laughs> of organic material. The suffering of human billions makes its entrance into him through the gateway of compassion. From all that happen arises a laughter to mock the demand for justice, his profoundest ordering principle. He sees himself emerge. Uh, it kind of goes on from there. And basically, and Zaff goes on, and these are the words Zaff used, and he's writing right around the same time Lovecraft is, and I don't think they, they would have known each other because Zaff didn't have anything translated at the time. But... Basically, he says his man. It's, all, stand it's also very close to Nietzsche and a lot. Oh yeah, a lot well, of and then, Yeah. Oh, and I think he he read Nietzsche. I I think I read. There's okay. very little. Yeah. There's only so much available that's translated by him and out there. Period. But well, I just uh, looked up a little bit about Zaft, and it seems he was also a mountaineer, which is interesting. And the and a, and a, a student of Schopenhauer, so he's got two things in common with Nietzsche. And he was, I don't think he was, I don't think there the term anti-natalist, I don't know if that exactly, I don't think it existed at his time, but I think he would have, he wasn't, I don't, he wasn't so one he's vocally, a, he's a, he just like, wasn't one by choice or life. So he's like a Schopenhauerian pessimist, kind of, he continues on in that same vein. Yeah, a little bit. And he talks about mountain climbing in the essay and he says, yeah, you know, you don't, you're not, you know, he's like the the abyss exists there. He's like, but you're not concerned with it when you're choking on vertigo. You know, uh, <laughs> so you know that's that's like Hamlet, birth of tragedy again, right? Like thought impels action, and I guess that's this is what Zaff gets into. This is to quote Zaff again. You know, this is where man becomes quote unquote the universe's helpless helpless captive, kept to fall into nameless possibilities, and this is where Lovecraft's cosmic horror uh, yawns open for me, uh, to my mind. Well, uh, okay, so that. Let me just read this. That's very read this thing real quick. Okay, then, yeah, sure. then, uh, Zaff says such a feeling of cosmic pan panic is pivotal to every human mind, and he says indeed the race appears destined to perish insofar as any effective preservation and con continuation of life is ruled out when all the individual's attention and energy goes to endure or relay the catastrophic high tension within. And he goes on to say the tragedy of species, yada yada, and he's basically saying in depressive states the mind becomes a tragedy. You know that's the pessimist. And I don't think he necessarily didn't seem like one himself. You know, it's not like he thought life was terrible. You know, he climbed mountains for Christ's sake, right? He he had a mission. Um, well, but it seems you, like, you're starting to say. Uh, yeah, it seems like uh, he, in the section you're reading from earlier, where he's talking about uh, the beast had to feel the play of power. It was heat and games and strife and hunger. Right, and the beast suffering is self-confined, uh, and then man it knocks holes into a fear of the world and despair of life. Yes. Mountain climbing is something that puts you back in that physical world where you have to be concerned with the physical space yes. around you and maintaining your balance and maintaining, um, you know, like not uh, letting yourself become like tired or worn out or dehydrated or whatever. The you know, it's like you're in a struggle sort of, um, and yes. it puts you back into life. Life in oh, the oh, and in his natural time, they, they didn't have life. the gear. They did not right. have the nice, the nice gear we have nowadays. They had in the nice ropes and all that stuff. They were, you know, it was pretty, pretty primitive. Uh, but go on. Yeah, you're like. Um, yeah, it was that much more hardcore? I guess what I'm getting mm -hmm. into. And so, when I think about somebody like H.P. Lovecraft, right? H.P. Mm -hmm. Lovecraft is, he is a like it passive intellectual right uh for him he is completely alienated from that um you know the, the experience of life as controlling physical space fighting and struggling like he 
Lovecraft, in many ways, like just sort of like Nietzsche said, I'm a decadent. Oh, his father Lovecraft died. Yeah, is, he... Lovecraft's fear, afraid of modernity and and a sort of critical <laughs> of modernity, but he's a super modern person because he's yes. he basically is the kind of person who would I think have felt that he should have been you know in more na- like. <laughs> In, in an earlier, more natural time, he would have been this leisurely aristocrat, right? But right. because he's seeing society dissolve around him, um, all he can do is sort of write about the, you know, like, or the, not society, but like, you could say like culture or civilization, right? There, there's a huge theme in Lovecraft of sort of like oh, right. civilization fraying at the ed- edges. The, the generation of the ape men, because I also see, yeah, I see that. That concern is of, that the tale of Arthur German? Yes, I think. Yes. Okay, yeah. there, that's it. Yeah, where he he's like, oh, you know, look these these hill people. They've been like, you you see that concern for legacy and culture and race in uh, his works. And what was the other one? You also see it. Um, oh, I was gonna say it also reminds me at a similar time, right? Uh, also writing or beforehand was a uh, Poe, right? And Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher was again if horror is allegory you know then there's your friggin message you know that that was a concern of the time well you know, i think for old for, school gone oh well lovecraft um there can i read something that uh is from sure. a letter that he wrote um where he said um he talks about um basically earlier in the letter he talks about the paradise of my adolescent years Um, about like maintaining this little garden at his house or whatever and then this is the passage that concludes the letter he said then i perceived with horror that i was growing too old for pleasure ruthless time had set its fell claws upon me and i was 17. big boys do not play in toy houses and mock gardens so i was obliged to turn over my world in sorrow to another and younger boy who dwelt across the lot from me and since that time i have not delved in the earth or laid out paths and roads there's too much wistful memory in such procedure for the fleeting joy of childhood may never be recaptured. Adulthood is hell. <laughs> and <laughs> I've always thought about that with Lovecraft where I feel like, he... yeah, his letters, I've, I've read some of his stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Some of his stuff's pretty incredible. I mean, I, I, you know, aside from like, cause like, I think you said going into it, like, um, you know, we don't need to spend an excessive time amount of time talking about like his, like Lovecraft's racist views or anything like that, or like you know. Yeah, because like, everyone, everyone <laughs> always offers the disclaimer because otherwise, and it's like, dude, you're talking about someone right. from the 1920, like, right? You they, know, they, like, <laughs> right. Um, but it, I'm just more thinking like, so you you can read a lot of that into his work, and people do of like being like basically panicked, like he's like a conservative panicked about like the. The collapse of the moral fabric is no he was more but he i was think more sophisticated than that they make him they i've heard i've seen it where people make him out to be a reactionary or a specific kind of race well i was gonna say i think this like, passage no, means it's, him, he's far more th- i think he's less sophisticated actually in that in that no, I mean, in uh, that letter was, of him saying adulthood is hell that i think a lot of it can actually be boiled down to a really simple psychological temperament that he basically grew up in like a really sort of like sheltered. antiquarian yes. and sheltered like it's like he imagine well, his father for... died young too right and he was again just like we talked about this with Nietzsche he was raised by women and he was also I think uh, a sickly boy too right so 
you know i think i think I he guess, was i think he, a lot him. of his work is being is the horror of like the complexity of being dragged like being dragged into adulthood right is similar to like the being dragged into the modern world from like a sort of idyllic antiquarian upbringing yes. where things were more simple and for him like I think that colors his entire work. I don't think it really speaks to the depth. I think I don't mean he's actually more simple overall. I think there is a depth and a complexity to a lot of his writing that you're maybe pointing to. But I think the reactionary element of Lovecraft, in a way, I think we could all relate to in some sense of basically. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like in, being like, no, like I don't. How want, much of this like, do we consent to or vote for? Right. Like, I want to go back to when it was easy and simple. Right. Yeah, and it's no, and here's the thing. It's like, dude, okay, and mo like, there's never going back. And even if you could, right, are we going to step foot in the same river twice? And at that point, what are we trying to hold on to, right? Because even Lovecraft acknowledges he can't hang on to that garden. Um, right. And I was actually, yeah, he has I, to do it. Sophisticated, I meant, I meant as a person that by third, before he got pancreatic cancer and died, some of his later letters, like he's a little, like he's a little less overtly racist. He's like, ah, you know, Mexicans are all right. And you know, you, you know, it's worse than that, but it's, it's, it's kind of pretty funny. He was like anti-Semitic, but he dated like a Jewish woman. Yeah. Like, he she married took care her. Of him. Like, he married yeah. Her. Or yeah. He married her. That's right. I forget. Yeah. Uh, and then he, well, he later, he, he like, actually like Nietzsche, he called, maybe he read some Nietzsche cause he, he later calls Jews a superior race. And he, he talks about, oh, he calls them outer. This is what he calls them. And this is why it's funny. He calls them outer alien superior races. He also says it's similar about the Japanese. Like, okay, instead of instead of ignoring the racist part, we're dig getting into it seriously. And I'm right. Gonna, you know, so yeah. yeah, he says he's like, look, if you take a Japanese kid, ignore ignore any the racial features, raise him raise him in America and American culture. I guarantee you, by teenager, you know, he'll be an American boy. You know, and it's like. Yeah, he wrote that, you know, and so it shows you that he wasn't he right. Wasn't, so he's because usually the mindset for for staunch segregationists or racists, typically the mindset is the opposite of that. It's like, no, even if we try to we just the notion of integrating you or raising you is the problem to people like that. Typically, right. right? We just want you out of here. We don't you're, you don't belong. Get to the back of the bus or the oven, whatever it is, you know. Well, yeah, I think Lovecraft is um, uh, also around during a time when, like, yeah, he was, like, writing during the 20s, but it's, like, when did he die? In, like, the 40s? Oh. I feel, or, like, early 40s? Uh, 30s, he, 40s, basically, yeah, you might be right. He, th early 30s, like, though, right? Or late 30s. It, the course of your life is, like, World War One, World War Two. Like the interwar years, the complete like oh yeah no well here's collapse the of, like the British world you know system and like the rise of like you're basically there during like some of the most tumultuous times in human right. history, and then um, seeing so, the changes here from his antiquarian bubble, and then eventually right. it dawned on him clearly from his this is what I mean when I say he's more sophisticated it clearly dawned on him and you can see it in it because the writing doesn't lie right the sentiments express don't what i mean is what people unintentionally express is what doesn't lie the words may well be lies or nice things but it's clear from his sentiments and the way he expresses himself because it's like dude you can't you 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 can't and don't fake things like that right you just don't yeah well, uh but I, I i i i i that made me think less of more of him and less of the people who always try and like to my mind it's like 
there's one thing to be in like, okay, I get it. We got sensitive modern audience and people. And it's another thing to be like, oh, we almost got to like put him in a hole first and then we can discuss his work as if it exists separately from him. When again, like you point out, the, the work is absolutely captures the chaos and the hecticness of modern life of its time. Well, and also I think we'll look back people will be less have to do that caveat as history goes on and Lovecraft is like 200, 300, 400 years into the future, right? Because we don't say that about people who are writing the 1600s like like oh you know Shakespeare's Shakespeare's views on like you know things were not the most progressive it's like obviously so you know that's anyway so what you, you started out by asking about Mexicans right Shakespeare you did um but you, so when you started out asking me like kind of what I like about Lovecraft and I think we've kind of we've kind of talked about that aspect that I, I see there that it's basically he talks about science or he talks about the pursuit of truth in that same way that, that Nisha does of like it, it just implicitly, right. The sciences have so far harmed us little, Oh, the, you know, just like just quick, obviously that implicitly in that, that bomb, it does us harm. The, right. Because I don't think here's the difference. He, I don't think he, any any writer wouldn't have written that post the atom bomb just like any kind of large cultural or you know civilizational shift kind of changes how we do business or how we look at things or how we do things i you know what i mean it's like that was that was actually kind of quaint at that time because i think that was still barely outside of war uh, world war one um when you well, that was the early 1920s yeah. when you wrote call of cthulhu right at least when it was right published. it well, and so there is sort of, I think, part of maybe the same thing that inspired Tolkien uh, for The Lord of the Rings. Like, there's a huge, you're seeing, like, oh, right, what right. industrialized warfare can do, right? Yes. Um, that is, like, a whole subtext in, like, the... Sauron's army. Right. Uh, and the destruction of nature and all of that. And so right. there's, like, a critique of, like, so, you know, in that, like, World War One is the first time when we see really industrialized warfare in the like modern sense in the way that just made it absolutely like brutally efficient a in a deal. way <laughs> is, uh, yeah younger rights right exactly um and so i think there is this i think that is certainly an element of it but it's sort of like also just the fact that you know obviously darwin had just come along and over the course of the 1800s the, you, I think Nietzsche was correct to key into something that the sciences had sort of like struck down. Like Freud later came along and talked about like the humiliations or the embarrassments of uh, humankind that had happened over the Enlightenment. I forget exactly the term he uses, but like figuring out that we're not the center of the solar system, figuring out that like we're not in the center of the galaxy, right? right? All of these like things one, that are one, basically one thread at a time to our one. And I, that's our story and our, I think it's, we started. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, it's easy to just dismiss that as like self-importance or something like that. But I think it really is basically saying like with Darwin, it's very, it's most stark, right? It's like, no, you weren't like created in the image of the divine. Like you were sort of like, you're like a, you're a mutant, like teased out of this primordial soup by like suffering and, Oh, was like, it useful? Is a useful illusion by chance? Is that what what Freud was? I can't remember. Um, well, yeah, it was basically that, like all these things that had elevated man. We the science has struck them down, right? Right. Again, um, so that's and that's it, like the engines taking us forward. Now they're now the notion is they're holding us back. 
Sure. Well, it's like, you know, you've basically, you've, the sciences not only allow mankind to like in a highly efficient industrial manner, kill like millions of people on a mass scale, but it doesn't even matter that they died because you're just killing a bunch of like, you know, they're just animals, right? People are just animals fighting meaninglessly on this rock in, you know, uh, in this vast abysses of space that it's completely cruel. See, and you, just, nature. you just haven't found a good enough cause to fight for. Have you heard of right. ISIS? <laughs> Happy Halloween. That's... Yeah, for the FBI people listening, we don't actually support ISIS. Yeah, um... um uh, uh, Racism is bad. Don't support ISIS, etc. I support. Don't do basalts. I support the Egyptian deity ISIS and the yes. band ISIS. And I support essential um, salts, but not basalts. Yeah, that's by. Well, that's by. That is. Um, that the name actually comes from a song by the band Nile, which is about ancient Egyptian. Like, so oh, they probably Egypt, have a respect like for I, ISIS. Egypt. Oh, the band, band Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I, I love do. Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Queen of all time, um, Red Giant, et cetera. Yeah, there's a... Speaking of Egypt, you know that... I think uh, broke up Lo now. Lovecraft wrote a story called Beneath the Pyramids. For, oh, it was ghost inspired by for Houdini, right? For Houdini, yeah. Yeah, um, didn't he meet him or something? Or I don't remember exactly. They apparently had dinner together, which I think is a very interesting... Like, I would have that loved to was... be a fly on the wall. Like, <laughs> no Lovecraft kidding. and Houdini having dinner together. Yeah, Houdini was nuts. Oh, so yeah, I wanted to ask you though. So what from from the beginning of the episode then, um, with you asking me that, so what is your like what drew you initially to Lovecraft or what was the first thing you read by Lovecraft? I'm trying to think of the first thing I read. I don't I don't remember what the first thing I it's hard to say. Maybe one of his shorter stories, because I could handle it better, because you know, even like even when Lovecraft was writing in the early 1900s, he was still using speaking like of that archaic style, right? And then so he's got these long dense passages, and a lot of it is in. Funny you mentioned the passive earlier. Uh, he does often write in a passive voice, uh, so that that was pretty common. Um, so I'm getting I'm not answering your question. I'll I'll, I'll get to it. I promise. Uh, let me ask you this real quick. Did you ever read uh, or listen to Into the Walls of like is it Eric's or Erzik's or something? Oh, I recognize that title. It's um, one of the last ones, if not the last one he wrote before he died. But it was actually one of, it was him kind of getting into, I was more a little bit more sci-fi, first person kind of uh, action oriented. And it was actually pretty good. And, it, and it's like, damn, that's where, because he was starting to write more like that, it seemed. And then he died. Oh, wow. Yeah, but, uh, well, that's because Call of his Cthulhu main... is what definitely sticks out is the, that's the one that, yeah, I'll say this. I don't remember what I might have read first, but that's the first one I read that like that they really like I said was like that first line was like a lightning bolt. Yeah. I no, I that's the perfect way to to describe it. I I think uh his main um sort of predilection with his characters is that most of the time they're all like interchangeable and they they're very much fit the description of Lovecraft himself. Right. And I and I don't think it's because they're Mary Sue's because these aren't good. These aren't characters that are like remarkable in any way They're It's more just that they're they're just like empty vessels almost a lot of oh, the you time. Just made, OK. OK. You just made me had a thought, though, and, and, and uh, following these lines here, if you don't mind. Uh, 
I was thinking about the notion of madness popped into my head. You talking about these characters, right? That, and I guess because they don't—that's the thing—they don't matter. What, but what they, what inevitably happens is that something, something happens, and then they're subject to madness, typically, right? And to me, I was thinking the madness is that they know the truth, and how can they live in this world when they know the truth? You know, truth here being a. Right. It's 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 like the well, Lovecraft, I think, is really inspired by that. Uh, the Chambers, the King and Yellow story where. Yes. Um, or the the series of short stories where there's the play that if you read the second act of it or or anything beyond the second act, you like lose your mind. And, oh, and the, so you even good. see from the so perspective good. of the characters in that story in the in the yellow sign. Like he doesn't just what's interesting is that Chambers doesn't just say and then they lost their mind. You actually see from the character's perspective, right? Or you're reading oh, from yeah, the character's no, perspective. Their mania and, and he writes it so well. Like it's so hilarious. Cause how does he off the top of my head, do you remember how he does that? He's writing and so you're getting the mind the the this person thinks they're in reality and you're reading them going, oh, they're clearly not in reality. Yeah. But he, and he like, does it by contrasting their manic, crazy thoughts with whatever with what simple, the actual yeah. basic reality with the guy thought he had a crown and what was it like a tin of mints or something like it just things like that. Like right. Yeah. He, he, he takes the, uh, the crown out of his like safe. Uh, this is in repairer of reputations and he's like, talks about how there are these like it's a tiara of like diamonds that like blaze in the light and he's describing it in these terms and then his friend is like oh you're like he's just like i don't understand why you're you know um giving such reverence to that old like uh i forget how he describes it but it's just like uh he's basically just like wearing some like a tin foil like hat or some shit yeah. like whatever the equivalent it's, is it's the diamond. No, it's so good <laughs> And yeah. it's also horrifying because I think he does a good job of going, okay, this is the one, like, even though I think we've talked about this, right, that you can see to a degree that with a lot of people with mental illness that clearly it's frustrating for them. Clearly they're angry. Uh, that loss of control is clearly bewildering. But at the same time, uh, they don't, they can't, they couldn't exactly tell you what's, what's the problem anyway, right? right. It's not like yeah. you're, you're not taking your car into the mechanic and be like, well, the engine's knocking or it's squeaking or, you know, like something's up here. It's more like. Well, yeah, the problem is you don't see, you're not seeing the reality that they're living in, really, in, in some sense. Oh, I mean, that's that... scary. And then to say that any of us knows the truth. Oh, that's just terrifying. <laughs> well, sure. Well, and so that it. I mean, yeah, I, it is almost as if, like, so many of his characters are like Randolph Carter. When you, you know, he's a recurring character in Lovecraft stories. He's actually the main character. When you were talking about the Walls of Eric's, it reminded me of there's uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, Kadath which is a, a draft for, like, basically a sci-fi fantasy like did it, he it, it, bite john carter of mars was that what it was he they, i know the dream cycle was his own thing and then writing that story was but but I, it's I, very I similar to like an, an edgar rice burroughs style story like you bring up john carter of mars but it really reminds me of like uh have you read like at the earth's core or like any of the or like seen the movie it's like pellucidar is edgar rice burroughs idea of like this um subterranean it's like hollow earth stuff basically like no never uh, inside the earth there's like a whole um inverted like like on the inner surface of the earth right the earth's completely hollow and then there's also the inner surface has life on it 
and in the center of the earth there's like another sun right so that's what the light source is uh for the that's fun yeah for the subterranean world down there and it's ruled by actually hp lovecraft did read burroughs because he got the term uh shoggoth from edgar rice burroughs he describes uh like one of the monsters in pellucidar in the hollow earth are called shoggoths Um, that was i thought that was a that was i always thought that was one of his best words nonsensical words but i guess he, it's not he, it. he, he, he no it, but it's that's edgar rice burroughs the guy who wrote conan the barbarian gives us that yeah no and i know oh right right and i know that there was some there was give and take and friendliness amongst you know a lot of those writers back then right like they they, they would write some stories oh in yeah certain, in i think they liked and write to work together sometimes they liked that... to write in the same universe i don't think anyone I, I have certainly never heard of any like bad blood. It seemed like whenever somebody would write, take someone else's character and write a story in it, everyone seemed to think that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but okay, wait, we were just, oh, no, just, to, just so in case listeners didn't know, uh, it's a long trend and there's still people writing about Arkham to this day, let's say for in love. Oh yeah. Case. Yeah. Sure he had a whole writing Conan too, right? Circle, um, like Robert block and, uh, August Derleth. I mean, right. Derleth basically preserved all of Lovecraft's like whole extended canon. But so basically, in Dream Quest, it, it it's a character. The character actually does become something of a character, where he is, you know, going and doing things and fighting a battle. There's a whole like race of intelligent cats. H.P. Lovecraft love cats, and the cats like fight a battle against these moon beasts and. <laughs> Like Carter gets to like fight with the cats and the cats rescue him or whatever. But, you know, it still feels as though he doesn't really know how to write a character having a will and like expressing it through their actions very well. It kind of feels like he drifts from event to event. Like, uh, and then he like, he fought, you know, then he ended up here and then got captured and then had to escape. And then it's like, there was an indescribable monster. And then, right. He had to run away from that. And it's like external circumstances just kind of like push him along a lot of the time. And so it's almost like interesting that later in his life, he finally got towards writing maybe a more active character. I was going to say it's like a struggle for him. It goes against all of his instincts. Right. You know, dude, if you've been writing in the passive voice for a while, it'll take a while to root that out. Or in speech, we use words like um, uh, fill the gaps. So right, in Walls yeah. of Erzix, or whatever it's called, he, I want to say, if I reread it, it'll probably be more passive than I remember right now. But I think it definitely, you're definitely going like, oh yeah, this guy's a space agent. He works for the Mars company over here on Venus, whatever, right? He's doing these missions. He's shooting these primitive aliens. Like he's, it seemed like a more competent uh, character who had a will of its own. Interesting. Yeah. I just, um, I just found this other, um, it's, I think this is a journal entry from Lovecraft in 1918. Um, he says, quote, all rationalism tends to minimize the value and importance of life and to decrease the sum total of human happiness. In some cases, the truth may cause suicidal or nearly suicidal depression. Um, so, quote, yeah, quote, unquote, I, Nietzsche. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's the thing. I so there's like one line in Call of Cthulhu where he says that the great old ones were beyond good and evil. 
But I don't know if he actually took that from Nietzsche or if he just stumbled upon like the same phrase, right? Because um, it's not like the phrase beyond good and evil is like the craziest thing to come up with, right? You could, right? Um, it's not necessarily that it would be like a Nietzsche reference, but it does kind right. of suggest you take to beyond me that, and then you put a word behind it, right? <laughs> yeah, um, like uh, beyond meat or beyond uh, Shagath, beyond Thunderdome. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so I don't know. I but when I read fragments like that, I I feel like confirmed in sort of the my interpretation that he was exactly thinking along the same lines as Zap and, and Nietzsche. Um, oh, yeah. OK. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, because yeah. it's definitely there in his writing. And then so do you think it is an accurate uh, if I were to say again, I think I said it earlier. Um the the only thing if uh, the only thing scarier than the unknown is the truth is that a fair kind of interpretation or analysis or at least as far as even what lovecraft himself says because if if growing up as hell and living as hell and the truth is suicidal ideations right well it wasn't that wouldn't that mean okay i think i'll i would just combine them right that the truth with a capital T is by definition always unknown. It's the noumenon, right? That's sort of oh. the the, so, the so revelation yeah, the, the of, truth of, itself. of Kant. The truth itself is unknown. The ultimate truth, or whatever the fuck stupid words we want to come up with, right? God. That 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 true that at the perception of the external world from an absolute perspective outside of yourself, by which all your knowledge is confirmed you don't get to have that right and so the truth is the unknown who's wait, wait let me ask you who's, who's there is, to I correlate who's there to um co-sign on that i'm just curious if, if we do if me let's say me and you together let's say we did okay there's the capital t truth like who can we get to correlate it or uh you know not correlate it co-sign it right yeah like jesus <laughs> who else is there that, that's who we need damn Okay. We need Jesus. We we need someone Wait, with a lot of credibility. You then. need Jesus, Mina. This is mask off. The whole point of this podcast has been to get you to convert. Well, to, Je to Jesus. Um, it's Halloween soon. What about a kid <laughs> dressed up as a witch? Jesus needs you. Um, no, I think that. Um, yeah, I. I think that's sort of points to it, right? Is that it's the truth is always the unknown and then it's like the terrifying feeling it's like the, you had one direction which was basically the belief that the further you probe into that unknown the better it's going to look and then the this is the the horror that actually the more you probe into it the worse things end up looking for you and that is kind of what it ends right. up getting confirmed when i'm reminded by... of both schopenhauer and schopenhauer's educator Especially where Nietzsche talks about, like, on one side, you got the dull color. He's like, it may seem kind of boring or monotonous to talk about the gray, the, the gray sides, the, the grayness and lack of colors in modern day life. But it's no more encouraging on the other side, you know, that there's tremendous power there, but it's young, naive, dangerous. You know, um, this is kind of uh, maybe a non sequitur or not, not total non sequitur, but when we were talking about Lovecraft um, overusing you know, indescribable and unnameable earlier. You got a good excerpt. He actually, I, he has a story called the unnameable, um, where the two characters, and I think one of them is Randolph Carter, if I remember correctly, are like, they're sitting in like a graveyard 
arguing about the unnameable of whether or not it's acceptable to describe something as unnameable. And basically the other character <laughs> is saying, no, it's not. There's a, like, that's just lazy writing. There's always some way to describe it. And then the sort of joke, spoiler warning of the story is that in the end they get attacked by some sort of Lovecraftian monster and the guy in the hospital bed who was just disputing the idea that something could be unnameable. Um, let me actually, I'm going to pull up the end of that where he, because <laughs> okay. it's so, um, it's so perfect of Lovecraft sort of, I don't know on the one hand, like maybe like trying to stick it to his critics, but uh, it, like doing it in a sort of funny lighthearted way. So at the end he says, you know, so he tells the physician that it was like an animal that attacked them. Right. But then, the end of the passage is uh, the character saying, uh, quote, after the doctors and nurses had left, I whispered an awestruck question. Uh, Good God, Manton, but what was it? And uh, he says, I was two days to exult when he whispered back a thing I had half expected. He said, no, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere, a gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were <laughs> eyes and a blemish. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination. Carter, it was the unnameable. <laughs> and so it ends, it literally ends with the character who had criticized, like calling everything unnameable. Like he's, and it's interesting because he actually gives you at the end there some like poetic diction that are, are like metaphors, but that don't correspond to like, you can't imagine like a creature looking like a pit or a maelstrom, right? Or not any living thing we're aware of. And so the fact that he describes it with all this sort of like chaotic, incomprehensible, yeah, you know, descriptors, and then it makes perfect sense when he ends it by saying it was unnameable, right? Um, no, and no, normally in a lot of cases, you know, you, you want to most I, I, advice for writers, uh, you want to avoid mixing metaphors or going overboard, but in that uh, the essence of the pit, the maelstrom, like that was, you know, that's biblical, that's uh, powerful, right? Like that, that's that would that was a pretty good uh, line there. I think Lovecraft mixes quite a few metaphors now that I think about it. Um, oh yeah, yeah. If we I think if I he were breaks fine tooth, tooth comb to his work, it, yeah, I'd, I'd be writing for editing for days. Well, what do you think about that? The fact that he does when we, we I mean, you've talked about passive voice kind of throughout, oh. and then the mixing of metaphors. He breaks a lot of the rules. Oh, and, and also I think it was uh, it might be Bukowski, not Bukowski, um, fiction author. I, I his name is slipping me, but he would. Uh, teach writing and he said uh have your character want something in the first you know couple oh, that, lines that even like if Vonnegut. it's just a glass of water That's i think it might Vonnegut be Vonnegut for sure yeah no that was, yeah. that was part of his thing you know uh was to say yeah they 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 always they you know they need wants and you think think about a characteristic to life it's like yeah this this is that defines us want is what we are desire is what we have you know or you know and then and, and arguably behind all that is need you know at the base right. level well, and that's what people feel drives the story along. So, so it's another thing though, that as we kind of talked about again with like, he, he, he gets a little better with it when he starts writing more adventure based stories or dabbles in it. Right. But yes, also okay. characters who, who often don't seem to really have a driving force or want anything. So what do you just like, what do you think about Lovecraft breaking every rule that they teach you in terms of like interesting uh, writing? Yeah. Or even against better, just self-judgment. I think, I think some of it was just being a young writer. I think as he got older, he got better. I think he was a good writer period. He had a harder time, uh, like kind of bringing it all together in larger stories. 
which is why I think, you know, a lot of his larger works like Mountains of Madness and, um, you know, like they do have, they do drag, they do, they will make you angry, they will make you cranky if you're sitting there trying to read through, you know, pages of demoniac, cyclopean, archaic language, you know. Uh, right. But I think, I don't know, he gets it's been long enough. He, he, he kind of gets a pass because look like he, he earned his rank, you know, he, you can't argue with it, uh, his vision and his creativity. So it's hard for me to judge it, but if I was just to judge it outright, I'd well, be yeah. like, yeah, a lot of it's just bad. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm not, not necessarily not saying bad. you should judge it. Do you should judge it? I'm more just asking like, why does it work in spite of that? Because oh, okay. I think it, I think like it's his he, creativity, his experimentation that Lovecraft himself, he wanted something and that much was clear, even if it wasn't always clear in his stories, what the characters were up to or what the point, you know what I mean? Uh, I think, I think a lot of his stories do, they either meander or like you said, what did you say earlier that if it's kind of dreamlike to begin with that they kind of just bleed into one part to the other? Well, I've got this, uh, yeah, the HP uh, Lovecraft against the world against life by Welbeck in his like sort of philosophical interpretation of Lovecraft stories, he describes the main characters as marionettes at, at one point, And that always stuck with me of like, they're just sort of like props to be ripped apart in some sense or oh, yes. their minds the destroyed. allegory is what matters um, more in Lovecraft. That definitely comes out in Lovecraft that the allegory matters far more, which is why uh, I guess it's why the last story works of it's the unnameable, you know, but it's a joke. And then, with the other stuff with the cosmic well speaking stuff. of allegory and you brought up mountains of madness so that the whole when when the you know they encounter the shoggoths at the end there there's sort of this um this uh i don't know I, would you call it a phrase they taught they kind of tease like that they had this sort of like chanting words which it's uh teka li li uh like t-e-k-e dash l-i-l-i and you know Typically, you hear people kind of pronounce that like "teka li li, teka li li," and that's like, um, you know, it's it's obviously just like syllables strung together. It's supposed to be some ancient language, right? Right. Um, but it's it's when they're way down underneath the ancient city, they discover in Antarctica, and then they like encounter a shoggoth and basically run from it, and they hear it making that sound. And I've heard one interpretation, and I forget where I've heard this. It might be S. T. Joshi who said really what he thinks that's supposed to be pronounced is is that it was love lovecraft went to live in new york city and you know he's like a country boy and he's kind of like horrified by the you know like the pollution and how dense the population yeah, he's a real is. schopenhauer about it right <laughs> he's a real crank but, but he 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 hated the sound of the trains in the metro system and then you think about that sound it's like teka lily teka lily teka lily teka lily um, and so the That's monster okay. is making a sound of like the train moving on the railroad tracks of the incessant noise of the city. Right. And so, so again, it conscious it's conscious like, or unconscious. I don't, I have no idea. Actually, I think it might be, I think that might be conscious to some extent, but I don't know if he was necessarily conscious of like the symbolism of like, it, it's sort of the, a the point. Staccato, I was maybe, the staccato sound of the consonants does have that like okay have you ever heard the song train of Distru uh train of consequences by megadeth I think oh yeah one of their yeah, yeah. yeah right like that i feel like we, without knowing the name of that song you'd listen to that listen to that guitar riff and you would think train 
right? The rhythm. Right. Yeah. The staccato, right, the staccato hits the rhythm. Like it's, it, I totally, like, as soon as you said that, I immediately heard it in my head and I'm like, oh, that's totally it. And I'm never going to unhear this. I'm never going to unsee it. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to hear this forever. Well, it, like it just makes me trains, think but... like maybe he didn't, I think he, yeah, he didn't maybe necessarily understand like the underlying symbolism of the fact that it's like his work. I, I, it's what a point I was kind of grasping at earlier, and I don't know oh, if yeah, I no, was like finding point. the words for it in terms of like that. It's not just that he's like a reactionary, like against Beyond modern that. culture or society. Yeah. It's almost like he's like literally he's feeling that like physiological reaction to like sort of the ugliness, like the aesthetic ugliness of like modern industrial, like scientifically guided life, right? Life in this new post death of God era where we've like created all these edifices that have made society really efficient, but it's really fucking ugly. Right. And just on the most basic level or the adulthood is hell thing. Like I've got to now like, like, you know, keep my appointments according to the schedule of that, the trains that, you know, I hope they run on time, all the complexity of like this, like intense, like nervous system of the, of the whole city, right. That you have to like become familiar with and all of that um and right that, that so there's the a certain... common fear and his personal fears right in there i think um and by common i just mean again like you think about all the people like worried about everyone anarchy, yeah all the people worried about church all the people worried about the fan you know it's been it's been going on for a while now right yeah and and it's and so i think there is like that element that kind of like underlies his work of just like this encroaching like sort of like this encroaching like hideousness <laughs> of, of 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 that's being brought on by our own like our our own pursuit of you know whatever it might be like scientific knowledge or whatever and so many of his characters are academics who are like oh what's my job i work at the college and for some reason at arkham we have a department that studies like ancient yes. demonology or, <laughs> esoteric like, text, yeah. or like esoteric texts or like, you know, um, I'm an expert in the work of the mad Arab, you know, who wrote the Necronomicon. Yeah. It's like, it's like, why would you ever have a fact, you know, like a, a, uh, program devoted to, you know, trying to dis- discern the Necronomicon. But then you think about like today, right? Like we do all kinds of, um, experiments i mean i think i I might have brought up in the podcast before but like a non-trivial number of scientists when they split the atom like thought that what would happen is the chain reaction would never stop and we would ignite the entire atmosphere of the planet it wasn't the majority but like a decent number of them when they did those first atomic bomb tests like Oppenheimer, i had to be i become death that certain number of them were like, well, let's see if we all, if we kill the whole population of the globe. Well, if you and now we know, really thankfully, that, that we didn't do that. Like, if you're a scientist right. and you're intelligent and you think you, you know what's going on and that's what you actually think is going to happen, dude, I would totally be a monkey under the desk. I'd just be like, ooh, ooh, bad, you well, know, but, right. <laughs> bad, bad mojo. But that's, but, that's, so, but that's the thing. So then you imagine then they still did it because they wanted, they had to know. <laughs> it's, right? we'll, we'll risk it. They wanted to Destroy the know. world or, yeah. Right. And thankfully that didn't happen, but like, um, they were still willing to like roll the dice for the chance of knowing that's another, uh, horror author, uh, Hellraiser. Actually it's in Hellraiser two, where the scientist is basically the way he's introduced is amazing. He's doing, he's doing a open, I think it's like a vivisection surgery on a patient's brain 
um, where he's like poking around at the scalpel and he he's giving a lecture and it ends with we have to see we have to know and in the end he's like willing to open the the puzzle box the hellraiser box that basically opens a portal into hell because he has to Necro see and he has to know the Necrocubicon, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with, with that, with the uh, configuration. Yeah, I don't think they introduce that until later, um, like entries in the franchise. There, but there went a, there went a good band name, <laughs> Lament Configuration. Yeah, for real. But I just think of it as like the puzzle box, you know, like. Uh, but yeah, um, so yeah, it's that that scientific drive that is going to it's that that's the good intention that's like leading us on the road to hell right <laughs> um and i don't know lovecraft saw that and perceived that that was what was coming and that that and you notice that there's no like satan in his stories like there's no christian no. recognizable devils it's like and these... the closest thing he writes about which you know we've, and we've talked about it before uh nemesis but i guess technically it's nemesis because it's ancient and he even writes about how old Nemesis is, and I guess back to man's most profound ordering principle, technically speaking, Nemesis is actually divine judgment, right? It's divine mm. retribution, technically speaking. I don't, like, that's not what, I don't think that's how she's described, really. But that's whenever, whenever, whenever she's out doing the God's bidding, that's what it is, right? That's the, the God's going, we need retribution here. We need to level the scales. Right, yeah, somebody's become too... Uh, big for their britches and has, right uh, so you know like the beginning of, is it Iliad or Odyssey off the top of my head you know that it's like one it's there's it, it's one that's absurd like they started a war over a woman it's like okay like a, yeah, you know, I think a Iliad. woman a woman wrote that story number one number two <laughs> you know I mean number two am I right <laughs> number two uh, it's like look you're hot and you're cool but you're not that hot you're not that cool uh, and number well, two the never oh, seen Helen of Troy yeah yeah i can't say uh she's a total asshole i don't know but okay it's apparently she's hot but then the other side of it which i think is more out of sight it's just like eh, there's too many men and men and heroes zeus just wanted to level the playing field and i think technically before all that is nemesis right i don't know if it actually it's in the story but i think technically it's there it's subtext i remember nemesis although yeah, technically nemesis i guess it's retribution of... go on oh i was gonna say i think nemesis is part of uh the iliad i think but it's been a long yeah. time since I've read it. Um, I've been rambling but, for a minute. Go on, yeah. Oh, no, no, it's all good. Well, I, yeah, in terms of, um, I don't know. It's like you think about the the great old ones or the various names or whatever you could call the sort of gods of Lovecraft's world. And they are, I don't know. It, the it's like the devil. Your races. Well, think about like uh, Mephistopheles and Faust is like, he is the devil. The Christian devil is like concerned with mankind, right? Yes. He cares he, about he our something. human sins. He, he like human, like uh, the whole human world of sin delights the devil of the Christian world, right? And he like wants to cause human beings suffering and this, that, and the other. For like Nyarlathotep or, you know, Cthulhu or whatever the elder god they don't have any concern they're never written with any concern for humanity beyond like the concern you might have for like a, a specimen or like that yeah like study they'll step on or us like... or enslave us or like we're we at most we're 
I don't know, you know, I, I guess on a daily basis, how many, how often do human beings consider ants, right? These things right. like outnumber us and outweigh us, I think. I think they even outweigh us, right, in total. Oh, in but terms of like biomass? Yeah, but they're just under our feet. Right. You know, we don't, and you watch one and then you try and puzzle, like, <laughs> I don't give myself away here before, but like, you know, I've been out, out, out like studying colonies and stuff with people. And you watch them and like, sometimes you kind of get into it and you're like, well, what are the, you know, like you're trying to, you're rationalizing what they're doing. And then it's just like, no, they're, they're following whatever chemtrails they know, they know to do, like they're doing their thing. But like, I remember watching one, I was thinking, I wonder if he's going home and it's like, you know, what is, what does it matter? Like he's going to sacrifice himself <laughs> for the colony or technically it's right. She, right. They're all females. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that's I, I remember. I think it was there's on, no there's no humanization. We tend we humanize and okay, this is this is a complete my point and your point. I think or to get get further there, it was to say that while we we what's the word for it? Uh, human not humanize anthropomorphize. And, yes, thank you. There's the more intelligent word. Uh, <laughs> there's more syllables. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fancier words. That's a higher higher dollar word. It's worth a yeah. half a pound of ants. So uh, this, is, this, is, this is our future society where we ounces use ants of for ants currency. can I get for a dollar <laughs> with the inflation no, the way it is? Oh, no, um, you don't want to know. <laughs> Got that ant lubricant? No. Um, well, yeah, I, just really quick. I remember listening mm -hmm. to like a radio lab where they were talking to like an entomologist who was kind of talking about that same thing. Uh, he studied like insects and there was one that um, like while he's studying in the enclosure, it, it was something where he like – the ant, it wasn't an ant, it was like a wasp or something. It like fell and like ended up getting like cut in half. And then it just starts like licking its own viscera out of the wound. And he's like, what the fuck? But he licking realized he's like eating basically. And he's like, well, viscera, he's like, just from the perspective of like, you're just completely making decisions based on chemical inputs. Viscera is like a really, it's like, you know, like that stuff. It's like, it's like sugar for human beings, right? So it's like the fact that it's leaking out of your bisected body, like it doesn't have a higher order consciousness, like, or it doesn't have a, yeah, I hope I would notice ordering, ordering consciousness or whatever you would call it, like conscious awareness to like kind of order rank, make sense of all of that's going on. It's just following the chemical inputs. And so if you anthropomorphize these insects, like at all, they won't make any sense to you because they just, it is a completely alien form of intelligence. Right. Uh, right. And they don't do that. And then so those outer alien gods and because they're not uh, like, you know what, there's there's different varieties like one. There is a trickster amongst them. There are alien uncaring gods there are gods that want to enslave us. And then there's also idiot gods. Right. There's, you know, just these entities that, 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 that exist. Well, that's yeah, the blind idiot God, I think, is refers to Azathoth. And there's a lot. I forget which it, it's not in the story called Azathoth, but it's a. uh there's one of H.P. Lovecraft's writings where he basically describes this as like the. It might have been the Egyptian one, Nile. Yeah, it might it um, might be that that namesake story where he describes as uh, the idiot god. The it's like the 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 nuclear chaos or something like that. It's like yeah, as the in crawling the, chaos maybe, but nuclear. Or crawling chaos is crawling chaos is Nyarlathotep. I don't know. We're getting into all the deep lore of it, uh, Lovecraft, but <laughs> we got we got yeah. It was basically the idea that like the god the the blind idiot god right is that the all of creation in the same way like maybe Hinduism is the easiest way is that you have like Brahman right. And right. so, like, the Godhead is sort of, like, reflecting all reality. Um, 
even though like we're having like this illusion of separateness it all like kind of comes from brahman um but like there's still this idea of like you know like uh of a personal deity behind this right whereas like azathoth is a blind idiot god it's almost like the idea that like the universe is being created by something that's not all knowing it's not all seeing <laughs> it it's actually completely unaware or completely crazy almost it's like a completely like um you know, non-person, non-personal or non-anthropomorphized God, what would that be like? And that's like, it is kind of like a horrifying idea. Um, right. What if know, there is that, a God and it's just an idiot? It's just kind of. Right. Or, or, or it's not, it, it doesn't reflect like, you know, in Christianity, you have like Yahweh, right. Which is so far beyond mankind, but we're still like made in his image. Right. It's like, what if the deity yeah, that rules everything is something that's doesn't, we're not made in its image at all and <laughs> it, it's yeah, nothing it's that we crawling, can understand yes right or a, right I, I, no, I like that i like the term nuclear chaos too especially thinking of like the conception of the big bang going yeah it's, it's there's a lot of radioactivity still around from it. <laughs> it right yeah it's well and and that is like well i mean just what you're talking about the idea of just like that now we conceive of the beginning of creation in terms of the Big Bang, and we think of things like background, cosmic background radiation that's created by it. We're living in that material universe, and Azathoth, I think, is like a that's the symbol of that, right? We're living in a blind. That's you'll hear scientists literally describe it that way. Evolution was a blind idiot process. That's what we were shaped by, and so that is our god. Until we ate like, mushrooms. <laughs> and then, right. and then we god. were like oh my god the universe <laughs> loves me <laughs> yeah. yeah you see where you make that mistake um did hp lovecraft ever eat mushrooms or try any hallucinogens I, that like, i don't know um but I, I guess he didn't need to um <laughs> he, he, had his, he had his vision uh i, I would say you, you just what you just mentioned there was another line in zaff uh basically he talks about that same process of going from being purely blind because you think of the first organisms right Sing simple single cell organisms coming from what uh what were they it was previously just chunks of uh what they think is just um you know the biological proteins what are they called uh amino nucleic acids. acid not nucleic or, yeah. acid but some kind of acid I don't amino know, acids kind. yeah amino acids so i think i think that's one so from there they you know they grow into these or turn into these single cell organisms and all you have is these very basic organ organelles that eventually evolved to do functions like sensing light and then they're evolved the you know it needed to eat, they needed to eat and they evolved in that direction and here we are and then we then we as an organism would just be some aspect of nature who only imagines it's separate and who through its own consciousness only imagines it's saying something truthful about itself but in reality i think we are all very much lovecraft's characters that we are unreliable narrators you know, or like Chamberlain said, or is it, was his name? Chambers. Um, and Chambers, King and Yellow, collection of short stories, like the repair of reputation. You know, what's the difference between what you present to the world and what's actually going on in your head? Because I'd love to be able to see that discrepancy. Like if you could just kind of yeah. like, you know, lean, like if you could just oh, bring up a no, chart. I, I don't want to see it. Yeah, maybe not. I want to talk about horror. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. See, that, that's, that's the, re the real, like, again, the well, notion the that. This is we're back to this is truth being 
more horrible than the unknown. So maybe if there's two horrible things in life, it's the truth and the unknown. And it seems like we're kind of meant to walk like a tightrope between the two and not necessarily look down. I think they're the or, same. I think they're the same thing. It's the, the, oh, that's the good point. like whatever, whatever truth that we know now, I guess yeah. is, is like always eclipsed by that. Like the, you know, we're the, we're the clever animals on this little lonely star that invented knowledge. And as Nietzsche hints at the world began without knowledge and it'll end without it as well. And, um, so yeah, I don't know. I think, I, I don't know. I think Lovecraft for me to maybe wrap up cause we've been going for, I think about an hour and a half. Yeah, um, it's about right. I'll, I'll, uh, so to give, I guess like just final thoughts, I guess. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's effective to me to this day because he, he, he captured basically the anxiety at like a rapidly changing yes. transforming world in this kind of theoretical age in such a way that's so symbolic and archetypal that it it transcends like if he had if he had made his like sort of fears more specific right like his stories like that he wrote there's a story called the like, terror at red hook which is sort of like about new york city and it's like set in new york city and where like he kind of made his angst about living in new york city more concrete and it's a really bad story right it, it's when he right brings it into that like abstract arch archetypal realm that's sort of like almost so it's like hyper reality where you have these entities like Nyarlathotep and Cthulhu that just it lives forever and is still yeah, eternally think, relevant well I think he really in terms of horror and yeah uh, you know supernatural horror and literature specifically in uh that again it's he he's carrying on a thousands year old tradition and he reached he saw something previously untapped you know or you know it's not that we hadn't tapped it or that we hadn't written about it or talked about it but he just i don't know the way he it, it was like I, I think it was a culmination of time place it was just his orbit right and then you know yeah. here we are talking about him all these years later and um yeah you know he he he, he because i mean where do you go after that if if what's more it's because it's one thing to say i'm alive i don't want the monster to eat me or i don't want satan to get me and it's another thing to say hey like life is this meaningless void and there are things wholly alien and hostile to you that you don't know and that you'll never know and never comprehend you know it's like it's like it's it's much more easier to take the villain really right well uh the story from beyond actually is what that made me think of what, what you're just talking about where I mean, really quick, I know we're wrapping up, but it's, it's so, it's like the epitome of Lovecraft to me is that story It's basically a very smart, um, academic creates this beam that can <laughs> sort of see in other dimensions than we normally see. And, oh, what do you see when you point it all around you? Oh, there are all these entities and creatures that are like fourth dimensional or whatever that, that are is, all around That you. is a great that's actually that's a great story and i want to say that one's a little bit more action or right it's a little bit it's a little bit more fast paced it's pretty simple right yeah it's actually one of his better stories it's yes. really tightly paced and everyone should um should check that one out i'm gonna read a couple lovecraft stories at the end of this oh, episode awesome. that'll be oh have here. you um, um i might have sent it to you but there's a so maybe there's i'll a... do that one okay there's on. a 
but I'd say for fans of horror, for you, uh, there's a there's a channel on YouTube. Uh, you know, I'm trying to promote. Oh, well, let's promote your channel first. But uh, it's called Horror Babble, and they have a lot of Lovecraft stories on there, and they do some fun dramatic interpretations and reads of things. Uh, and oh, that's awesome! There. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll put I'll throw we'll throw a link to that and and support. But yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's to me it's the quintessential Lovecraft story because I think it's like the the assistant is the one telling the story, right? Because the the scientist who creates this beam. He gets eaten because he you, he discovers, of course, when you turn the beam on, not only can you see these entities, but they can see they you. Can see you yeah. And it's sort of like the mist, you know, like you've pierced into this other reality and it's just oh, and then it's pure the state of do, nature. Though, actually, but the, I, the assistant, it, it basically ends, I think, with him saying, he really, smashes the machine, right? He, has he smashes the machine and then he says, but now I know he's like, I can't shake the feeling, the knowledge that everywhere I go, these things are all around me. And so it's like oh, the yeah. horror. Oh, that's this is what we said at the beginning, right? Didn't I say? I, I didn't I say uh, this is this well, you, is uh, Lovecraft madness. Of... You know the truth now. You know. Yeah. The truth well, it's like you're world. saying. It's you like it's there's there's the problem of the monster chasing me right now, but then there's also the lingering sort of like oh we're in this sort of meaningless, um you know, placid island of ignorance in the void, right? that's the deeper horror that the character is left with other than like the guy getting eaten. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. But, better, it better him than me, but right. <laughs> exactly. no, big, no big deal. No big deal. You, you can eat by a bear, about. you know, who cares? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. good um, point or cannibals. <laughs> that's the thing. Somebody who takes bath salts, there's the callback. <laughs> yes. um, but so, yeah. And that's, I think the essence of Lovecraft though, is the, You've seen into this other dimension that's cruel and indifferent and it's all around you and it's inter sometimes like passing through the same space as you and he has that horrifying feeling and it's like that's the horror at the end is that lingering. So is that sensation. what his characters want then in the final analysis is to they are they cipher they either want to go back into the matrix or they want suicide. Yeah, because <laughs> they right, kind of peace and safety of a new dark age or go mad with the and they kind of. The, they tend Whatever in that direction, doesn't. right? They either once they know the truth, they they either they're either lament they're they're questioning how they're going to go on, or they completely lose it, or I think sometimes they die. Yeah, you you either join the Cthulhu cult and yes. start handing out pamphlets, or you go back into the Matrix and decide. Hey, I'm that voting a stake Cthulhu is a stake, 2022, regardless of whether. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Yeah, me too. You and me. I I actually know. You know what? I prefer Nyarlathotep as more my candidate. Okay, he's okay. a smooth talker. Oh, um, you don't. He you showed don't me some in the, really you... interesting videos, some campaign <laughs> video <laughs> footage. Um, all right. Well, Mina, it's been uh, awesome to yeah, have you back me. on. Happy. Hey, great time of year. One of my favorites too. Oh, no, I think it is. It probably is my favorite. Uh, fall, Halloween. So happy Halloween to you, family, everyone else. Happy Halloween. Happy Day of the Dead. Happy Allerheiligen. Uh, yep. Whatever holiday All you Eve, celebrate. Yep. All Saints Day. They, what's what do they call it? Catholicism. Uh, I think it's All Saints. Yeah, All Saints Day. Um, Aller Allerheilig. Forgetting the German, I think I just said it a second ago. That's like the German All Saints Day. Um, I think Halloween is a pretty American thing. The dressing up, people dressing up as witches and spooky, scary things. Um, and I'm hey, I'm glad for it. I I guess that's in many ways I am very American in my yeah. It's one of the funnier, weird kind of things we do because if you went to most people uh, and be like, hey, we we were sending the kids out to get candy from strangers, it's just kind of it, it, it's a bit it's a bit right. out there. Well, they're wrapped it as up as a mummy or something. It's very yes. yeah, yeah, it's yeah, very strange, like but or a I, sexy I love cat it. 
Right. Yeah. Well, that's hopefully not the case. That's more Halloween in downtown Austin. Is like, it, uh, I don't know. Some of the costumes are just. Uh, it's Sexy it's all Ninja just part Turtle. of the. Yeah, it's just all part of the hookup thing or whatever. But um, I you know I don't know. <laughs> I think uh. Now that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about rating rating Halloween costumes. So I guess we'll we'll end it here. All right, Mina. It's been good. Happy Halloween, everyone. Yeah. Thanks. You too. Take care. Okay, so I mentioned at the end of that conversation with Mina that I was going to read maybe a couple Lovecraft stories, um, but I found that in the interest of time, I really am not going to be able to get out uh, multiple readings in addition to all the other stuff I'm recording for the podcast in time for Halloween and all that. So I decided to just do one, and it's not uh, from beyond. It's the tree, um, because I couldn't resist. It's a story about ancient Greece. It's a, it reads like a spooky ghost story. There's even a little bit of the Apollinian and the Dionysian in there. Um, and I think it's just, it, it relates less to the topics we talked about in this episode and more to um, almost the topics we're talking about this season with the Nietzsche podcast having to do with ancient Greece, right? And so it's a spooky ghost story about ancient Greece from H.P. Lovecraft. Perfect way to spend Halloween on the Nietzsche podcast or to wrap up Halloween. So without further ado, uh, here it is. The Tree by H.P. Lovecraft Feta Viam Invenient On a verdant slope of Mount Maenalus in Arcadia, there stands an olive grove about the ruins of a villa. Close by is a tomb, once beautiful with the sublimest sculptures, but now fallen into as great decay as the house. At one end of that tomb, its curious roots displacing the time-stained blocks of pentelic marble, grows an unnaturally large olive tree of oddly repellent shape, so like to some grotesque man or death-distorted body of a man, that the country folk fear to pass it at night when the moon shines faintly through the crooked bows. Mount Maenalus is the chosen haunt of dreaded Pan, whose queer companions are many, and simple swains believe that the tree must have some hideous kinship to these weird paniski. But an old beekeeper who lives in the neighboring cottage told me a different story. Many years ago, when the hillside villa was new and resplendent, there dwelt within it the two sculptors Kalos and Musides. From Lydia to Neapolis, the beauty of their work was praised, and none dared say that the one excelled the other in skill. The Hermes of Kalos stood in a marble shrine in Corinth, and the palace of Musides surmounted a pillar in Athens, near the Parthenon. All men paid homage to Kalos and Musides, and marveled that no shadow of artistic jealousy cooled the warmth of their brotherly friendship. But though Kalos and Musides dwelt in unbroken harmony, their natures were not alike. Whilst Musides reveled by night amidst the urban gaieties of Tegea, Kalos would remain at home, stealing away from the sight of his slaves into the cool recesses of the olive grove. There he would meditate upon the visions that filled his mind, and there devise the forms of beauty which later became immortal in breathing marble. Idle folk, indeed, said that Kalos conversed with the spirits of the grove, and that his statues were but images of the fauns and dryads he met there, 
for he patterned his work after no living model. So famous were Kalos and Musides that none wondered when the tyrant of Syracuse sent to them deputies to speak of the costly statue of Tyche, which he had planned for his city. Of great size and cunning workmanship must the statue be, for it was to form a wonder of nations and a goal of travelers. Exalted beyond thought would be he whose work should gain acceptance, and for this honor Kalus and Musides were invited to compete. Their brotherly love was well known, and the crafty tyrant surmised that each, instead of concealing his work from the other, would offer aid and advice. This charity producing two images of unheard-of beauty, the lovelier of which would eclipse even the dreams of poets. With joy, the sculptors hailed the tyrant's offer, so that, in the days that followed, their slaves heard the ceaseless blows of chisels. Not from each other did Kalos and Mesides conceal their work, but the sight was for them alone. Saving theirs, no eyes beheld the two divine figures released by skillful blows from the rough blocks that had imprisoned them since the world began. At night, as of yore, Musides sought the banquet halls of Tegea, whilst Kalos wandered alone in the olive grove. But as time passed, men observed a want of gaiety in that once sparkling Musides. It was strange, they said amongst themselves, that depression should thus seize one with so great a chance to win art's loftiest reward. Many months passed, yet in the sour face of Musides came nothing of the sharp expectancy which the situation should arouse. Then, one day, Musides spoke of the illness of Kalos, after which none marveled again at his sadness, since the sculptor's attachment was known to be deep and sacred. Subsequently, many went to visit Kalos and indeed noticed the pallor of his face, but there was about him a happy serenity which made his glance more magical than the glance of Musides, who was clearly distracted with anxiety and who pushed aside all the slaves in his eagerness to feed and wait upon his friend with his own hands. Hidden behind heavy curtains stood the two unfinished figures of Tyche, little touched of late by the sick man and his faithful attendant. As Kalos grew inexplicably weaker and weaker despite the ministrations of puzzled physicians and of his assiduous friend, he desired to be carried often to the grove which he so loved. There he would ask to be left alone, as if wishing to speak with unseen things. Musides ever granted his requests, though his eyes filled with visible tears at the thought that Kalos should care more for the fawns and the dryads than for him. At last the end drew near, and Kalos discoursed of things beyond this life. Musides, weeping, promised him a sepulchre more lovely than the tomb of Mausolus. But Kalos bade him speak no more of marble glories. Only one wish now haunted the mind of the dying man, that twigs from certain olive trees in the grove be buried by his resting place, close to his head. And one night, sitting alone in the darkness of the olive grove, Kalos died. Beautiful beyond words was the marble sepulchre which stricken Musides carved for his beloved friend. None but Kalos himself could have fashioned such bas-reliefs, wherein were displayed all the splendors of Elysium. 
nor did Mucides fail to bury close to Kalos's head the olive twigs from the grove. As the first violence of Mucides's grief gave place to resignation, he labored with diligence upon his figure of Tyche. All honor was now his, since the tyrant of Syracuse would have the work of none save him or Kalos. His task proved event for his emotion, and he toiled more steadily each day, shunning the gaieties he once had relished. Meanwhile, his evenings were spent beside the tomb of his friend, where a young olive tree had sprung up near the sleeper's head. So swift was the growth of this tree, and so strange was its form, that all who beheld it exclaimed in surprise, and Musides seemed at once fascinated and repelled. Three years after the death of Kalos, Musides dispatched a messenger to the tyrant, and it was whispered in the agora of Tegea that the mighty statue was finished. By this time, the tree by the tomb had attained amazing proportions, exceeding all other trees of its kind, and sending out a singularly heavy branch above the apartment in which Musides labored. As many visitors came to view the prodigious tree as to admire the art of the sculptor, so that Musides was seldom alone. But he did not mind his multitude of guests. Indeed, he seemed to dread being alone now that his absorbing work was done. The bleak mountain wind sighing through the olive grove and the tomb tree had an uncanny way of forming vaguely articulate sounds. The sky was dark in the evening that the tyrant's emissaries came to Tegea. It was definitely known that they had come to bear away the great image of Tyche and bring eternal honor to Mycides, so their reception by the Proxenoi was of great warmth. As the night wore on, a violent storm of wind broke over the crest of Manilus, and the men from far Syracuse were glad that they rested snugly in the town. They talked of their illustrious tyrant and of the splendor of his capital, and exulted in the glory of the statue which Musides had wrought for him. And then the men of Tegea spoke of the goodness of Musides and of his heavy grief for his friend, and how not even the coming laurels of art could console him in the absence of Kalos, who might have worn those laurels instead. Of the tree which grew by the tomb near the head of Kalos, they also spoke. The wind shrieked more horribly, and both the Syracusans and the Arcadians prayed to Aeolus. In the sunshine of the morning, the Proxenoi led the tyrant's messengers up the slope to the abode of the sculptor, but the night wind had done strange things. Slaves' cries ascended from a scene of desolation, and no more amidst the olive grove rose the gleaming colonnades of that vast hall wherein Musides had dreamed and toiled. Lone and shaken mourned the humble courts in the lower walls, for upon the sumptuous greater peristyle had fallen squarely the heavy overhanging bow of the strange new tree, reducing the stately poem and marble with odd completeness to a mound of unsightly ruins. Strangers and Tegeans stood aghast, looking from the wreckage to the great sinister tree whose aspect was so weirdly human and whose roots reached so queerly into the sculptured sepulchre of Kalos. And their fear and dismay increased when they searched the fallen apartment, for of the gentle Musides and of the marvelously fashioned image of Tyche, no trace could be discovered. Amidst such stupendous ruin, only chaos dwelt, and the representatives of two cities left disappointed. 
Syracusans that they had no statue to bear home, to Gaeans that they had no artist to crown. However, Syracusans obtained after a while a very splendid statue in Athens, and the Tegeans consoled themselves by erecting in the Agora a marble temple commemorating the gifts, virtues, and brotherly piety of Musides. But the olive grove still stands, as does the tree growing out of the tomb of Kalos, and the old beekeeper told me that sometimes the bows whisper to one another in the night wind, saying over and over again, Oida, Oida. I know, I know. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.